Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of To Be Determined with Bill and Dan. Greetings from, I guess, deep in the Crab Nebula this time. Yes, indeed, Crab Nebula, because uh, we have on tap for today the Murray Leinster story from 1945 that is called First Contact. And of course, everybody knows that Murray Leinster is the pseudonym for Will F. Jenkins. I'm not sure why so many early science fiction authors needed to have a pseudonym. Apparently, it was either not popular or cool to write science fiction back in the 40s. Or I'm not sure why, why people felt the need to hide their identities from people. I get it that there were a lot of women who were using male pseudonyms or gender-neutral pseudonyms so that people didn't know that they were women because they were worried that they might not get published or might not get the same respect. But it's a little odd that there are so many dudes that were doing the same thing. I don't know. Maybe it's so when they submitted the same story to a bunch of different magazines, they didn't know it was coming from the same guy. <laughs> there you go. You know, I know that there are people who would write under different names for different genres because fans get fixated on people writing one kind of thing if they're really popular. But again, that's not the case with Murray Linster. That's true. I don't particularly know him as doing, I don't know what, gardening books or something. <laughs> that's it. Architecture with Murray Linster, or that's with right. Will F. Jenkins, I suppose, because that's his real name. Well, anyway, so First Contact is an early story that, true to its name, talks about the first contact between an alien race and a human race. Or the Shocking. Human race. Yes, Truth and Advertising with the title. How weird is that? I guess it's pretty weird. <laughs> So basically, like we just said, First Contact, it's not a complicated story by any stroke of the imagination. It, it is, as the title says, First Contact. And it's the story of two ships meeting in deep space, one crewed by humans, one crewed by aliens. And the decision of how they're going to handle this and the, I don't know if we would call it a surprising solution to their dilemma or if there's really a dilemma at all that they're wrestling with. But uh, we'll kind of get to all that in due course. Yeah, we'll get to the characters first. Again, as it was so often the case, a very small cast of named characters, although we're talking about two full starships with two full crews. There's only four characters that really matter in terms of the story. Yeah, and nothing really happens with them as far as character development goes. It's really just kind of their reactions to the situations that they find themselves in, at least. Yeah, we set them up with a little bit of personality, give them a conflict to resolve, and bang, let them go. Man, as far as two of the characters go, there's not even you know very much to say about them because they're the two people on the alien ship that they don't even talk too much about. Right, and there's almost no dialogue that is relevant to them, credited within the context of the story either. Yeah, so you've got this one guy. The main character of the story is the, the ship's navigator and photographer, Tommy Dort, who kind of almost comes off as a young cabin boy on his first voyage out in space. At least I kind of get that impression. He's one of the junior members of the crew. Um, he's kind of out there photographing the Crab Nebula, which is what they've been out to explore. Um, and the other characters, again, there's the skipper of the ship. The ship's name is the Lanvaban which for any of you geographic uh, aficionados out there is a small area in southern Wales. So, But hey, it's also the name of the starship too. So now you got your little geographic fix in. There you go. A little piece of home to take with us into space. There you go. Maybe Murray Leinster or Will Jenkins was from Wales. 
Well, and we've got the two characters who are counterparts to Tommy Dort and the Skipper on the alien side. Tommy's corresponding character in the alien crew. We don't ever really get his his name that he would pronounce it or as he would pronounce it. If you could pronounce it. If he could pronounce it, that's right. So Tommy comes to or begins to call him Buck for some reason. Buck Rogers. Oh, there you go. And then the other character that we have, the final character that we have, is the alien captain, again, who has no name. He is, however, the alien captain. Absolutely. So, I mean, I'm hoping everybody can keep track so far. That's four. Yes, just four. That's complicated. And they're named other than Tommy according to their basic role in the story. Well, I suppose Buck is not, but... Yeah, I don't know what kind of job function a Buck is. (laughs) (laughs) The story begins with the human ship cruising along toward the Crab Nebula. And as you already pointed out that Tommy is the photographer, uh, one of the things about him is that he is something of an innovator when it comes to doing this kind of stuff. And he's he's taking time-lapse photography of the Crab Nebula from multiple perspectives. He even has the ship um, traveling on an arc rather than a straight line so that he can get a different perspective on the nebula. And all that is is stage setting, you know, that we are cruising toward the nebula, we are exploring, and their their goal is actually to go to the nebula and figure out basically more about it. Yeah, just to see what's there. It's one of those exploration missions. So they get there, and as they are, as they're coming into the body of the nebula itself, because they realize that it is, it has shape, it has contours, it it's... It's enormous. It's multiple light years across, and they are they're exploring the boundaries of it, or the I should say the perimeters of it in, in its shape. And as they settle into a little pocket oh, that they call a deep within the structure of the nebula, they begin to get alarms go yeah, off. Yeah, the collision alarm. Collisions apparently are bad, and you need alarms for them. And there's another ship that's out there. Well, that's the, the determination that they come to. It can only mean one thing. There's another ship out there, and its little beams that it sends out into the world to determine what's ahead of it are bouncing back off of theirs, and we have a stalemate. This is, this is the first contact. Right. The first thing they come up with is, uh, well, it can't possibly be an Earth ship. We're the only Earth people out here, so ergo, it must be aliens. And uh, now what do we do? And the first reaction is to do what? Oh, we got to kill them. That's right. They quickly come down to, well, they, they make reference to, you know, the, the established protocol, the standard protocol in, in all of the classes that they have been through. Yeah, the established protocol being a bunch of people apparently thought about the situation, but for some reason never actually thought about the concept of two ships meeting in deep space. But apparently every scenario these people have gamed out basically says, uh, well, if two cultures meet, one's got to be exterminated and the other has to be triumphant, which I'm thinking when I'm reading the story, really? That's that's all you could come up with? The brightest minds of the age? And with alien contact, that's the best you can do? But okay. Well, they dig in a little bit. And the whole basis behind that way of thinking is that you can't turn around and go home because you can't be sure that they won't follow you. They can't turn around and go home because they can't be sure that, that the humans won't go follow them. So you don't want to lead someone back to your home planet. And... You don't want to establish trade and, you know, shake hands and, and agree to go a different direction because what if one of you is lying? That's that's true. But the way they put it in the story, it's they, they basically say two cultures meet. One's got to be inferior and one's got to be superior. And I'm thinking, really, that's kind of a very narrow way of looking at the whole problem. But again, it's 1945. It is what it is. And Tommy sort of comes to the same conclusion that 
maybe there's a better way of doing it. Yeah, let, let's be fair. The people on the ship, they don't necessarily want to go to war, but apparently it's, they've been indoctrinated. At least the skipper constantly goes back to it over and over again as he turns this thing over in his mind. And, and as the story progresses, it happen, I won't, we won't you know call it out every single time, but just keep in mind that as he keeps pondering the situation every single time, it's like, well, yep, one's got one's to be exterminated and only one ship can go home. And so you kind of get that as a reader, get that's kind of beaten into you as you as you proceed through the storyline. Well, thankfully, in terms of the story, they make the determination that somehow they're going to attempt to communicate because, well, if I'm going to kill him, we may as well say hi- hello first. That's right. So they begin to try to figure out how they're going to make this happen. Yeah. They, so they, the little alien ship sends out a you know little you know, lifeboat or something. And uh, the human ship says, oh, look, they're launching something. Let's go find something to go meet it. And, of course, they look at Tommy being the expendable guy on the ship. It's like, hey, you've taken all the photographs. So, you know, I guess it's your job to go meet the aliens, which, of course, is a, you know, other job duties as a signed function, apparently, on your resume as a space photographer. He doesn't wear a red shirt, but he, he carries a camera, and it's the same thing. That's right. So he goes out there and finds out that this little, you know, alien ship that came out has nothing in it really but a, a kind of sophisticated robot. And it's got some type of communication sensors or what they call visit plates or something. And and he quickly realizes that the, the human side needs to come up with something similar. And Tommy goes back to the ship and says, hey, this thing is a communication device. Let's build our own little communication device to interface with it and start figuring out how to translate you know, their language into ours and vice versa. And so we enter into this process that is sort of glossed over in the story where... And in all stories dealing with universal translators, as a matter of fact. Right. The, the trial and error process of trying to figure out how to actually communicate concepts and content in anything like an accurate way and with anything like common meeting meaning right which since we can barely do it on earth you think well it's kind of probably a little harder to do with aliens but hey maybe they're really smart and maybe we're really smart yeah but anyway as the story progresses they eventually establish a common language using as they say like several thousand words and symbols and concepts and and whatnot and they they do begin to establish some form of communication and it largely comes down to Tommy and Buck, his counterpart, where they are, you know, when when there are long periods of time where people are thinking, well, the captains are, are thinking and scheming and, and scratching their heads or whatever body parts go by heads for the aliens. And they're trying to figure out, you know, how are we going to resolve the situation? Then they keep coming back around to war. Well, well, all that's going on in these cycles and cycles and cycles, Tommy and Buck are having a sidebar conversation, basically. Yeah, they're like the two guys who are stuck together. They're like, oh, well, you know, the, the captain's dumped all the work on us, so we got to figure out how to do it. And as a result, they kind of kind of bond together and become friends because, you know, they're the guys doing all the work. This captain's going to take all the glory. You know, he and Tommy realizes, hey, you know, they're oxygen breathers, we're oxygen breathers. You know, they're explorers, we're explorers. We got some shared stuff in common. That should make it pretty easy to communicate. And in fact, you know, he, you know, Tommy comes very quickly to the realization that, he thinks they're all the aliens are all above board, and he's all in on, on the aliens and the humans being friends. And he begins to think it would be a shame to kill these people, or contra to positive to that, you know, it would be a shame to die. <laughs> so they begin to think there must be some other way. 
And it, a lot of that conversation about there must be some other way really is driven by the presence of Tommy and Buck in the story. You know, even the skippers talk a little bit. They both agree that, oh, there's no way to trust each other. Well, when somebody's got to die, yada, yada, yada. But Buck and Tommy, they're still on the idea like, hey, well, actually, to be fair, Buck's like, yeah, I can't see a way out of this. Do you see a way out of this? Tommy's like, I don't see a way out of it. So, but we had to think of something because for both cultures to destroy each other is just kind of stupid, don't you think? Um, but again, as, as we find out in the story, as always, they're like, oh, well, yes, destruction's the only option here. So... Tommy, at some point in time, comes up with the plan, the brilliant plan and the solution to all their problems. Right. And we don't get let in on what that is until the very end. You know, we got to we got to hold on to the twist. Yeah, it's the old. And then he told the skipper the plan. (laughs) And we have to figure out what the plan is. And ultimately, it comes down to the two races switching ships and going back to their home planets. Well, well, but first of all, there's the setup, right, where you've got the skip. First of all, Tommy and the skipper go over to the alien ship and essentially have this blackmail, weird blackmail process where they're like, you either agree to not kill us or we'll blow up your ship in a very odd conversation. And the alien's like, oh, ha, ha, we did the same thing. We sent somebody over to your ship to blow it up and uh, we were going to threaten you with the same thing. So we're going to threaten everybody with destruction unless we all agree to not destroy each other. In this very weird conversation. Yeah, a weird kind of moment where they both pull the same trick on each other, recognize that they've both pulled the same trick on each other, and then they laugh it off. As Bill just referred to, the plan, as it as it becomes known, is that, yes, they are indeed going to switch, entirely switch ships. So the aliens are going to go crew the human ship back to their planet. The humans are going to go crew the alien ship back to Earth. And supposedly this gets everybody off the hook because... And this thing gets a little sketchy for me because I'm thinking, well, is that really the best option? But yeah, it gets both crews back to their planets. They both get some information about the uh, the other race. And they do agree somewhere in there that they're going to each, I guess, set their ships up so it can't be followed or tracked, which apparently is the big thing. You can't reveal the location of your home planet. But if you can set your ship up so it can't find its way home and the aliens can do the same thing, I guess it does work out. Yeah, so what they do is they go through a few days, I think, of prep. Three whole days to retrofit a starship. I'm like, that's pretty damn good. So they are they're wiping the data banks of things like star maps and and any kind of any reference to, you know, what kind of solar system you come from or what your planet's like and it goes so far as they're scrubbing their libraries of, you know, information about their cult. Well, they do and there there's some points where they talk about, well, yeah, let's leave some of the books about society and culture and stuff so they got some idea and the aliens do the same thing. But anyway, you get the idea. There's this this long involved process of, you know, delocating your your ship so no one can use anything that's on your ship to find their way back to you. And then there's someone from each crew who goes over to the other ship and basically teaches them how to drive. Yeah, which is a little odd because when they do some descriptions of the alien races, apparently they communicate by microwaves or something, yeah. radio waves or short waves. They call it telepathy, which it's not. It's you know communicating via some type of wave. And apparently they have no idea how humans communicate using noise to communicate with each other. So effectively each- They flap their meat. They do indeed <laughs> flap their meat, going back to the good old Terry Bisson days. Um, so anyway, I'm not really sure how you've got one ship that's run by people using radio waves to communicate, one ship using, you know, air and 
and acoustics to communicate, but yet somehow you can retrofit the ships to be run by the other side in a couple of days. Hand wavy them. It's just central to the plot of the story somehow. And so then we, we finally, everything is all set. All of the preparations have been made. The two crews have, have completely exchanged places and they are getting ready to head off to their, you know, to their respective home planets. And as they begin to depart, Tommy and the captain are talking and they're kind of reflecting on the whole thing, the whole process. And, and Tommy reveals why it is that he thought that it was okay to trust Buck. Yeah. So apparently there, there's actually a few references earlier in the story where he's like telling the, the skipper how the, the aliens are pretty similar to humans. And one of the things he notes is that he's he's picking up traces of t- different types of humor, sarcasm and irony. And and at the end, right, where they both realize they pulled the same trick on each other. He realizes the aliens are laughing and he's like, hey, they got a sense of humor. We got a sense of humor. And he says, hey, Captain, you know, I, th- I think we're going to be good friends because Buck and I basically spent the last couple hours uh, telling dirty jokes to each other. And if you can do that between two cultures, you just know you're going to get along. And we can point out, of course, at this point that as far as we know, there are no women on the crew. So it's just a couple of dudes sitting around making whatever. Yeah. What do spacemen tell his dirty jokes in 1945? Something about your mother in an exhaust port or something? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they don't even, er, Linster doesn't even give us any hints about what the jokes might be about. So we could only speculate. And he does, I mean, earlier in the story, there's a little part where he says, yeah, the aliens, you know, there's two sexes and, you know, we're oxygen breathers and we both, we we eat, we drink, you know, we excrete, blah, blah, blah. And that's kind of some basis for the dirty, humorous jokes that apparently they've been telling back and forth, you know, throughout the course of the whole encounter. Yeah, regardless of, of the context of the jokes, at the end of the day, the, the bottom line is that they did a little male bonding. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, right. And we're ready to go. And so that's, it, it, it's, it's an interesting concept that you've got all of these, these protocols, the, 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 the planning and the, you know, the, the things that get taught in all of the classes about how to interact with one another. And ultimately what it comes down to is and then real life hits? Yeah. That's not how things work in real life once you crack the textbook and put it away. Well, and how often is it that the presidents or the CEOs or the 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 people that are the face of an organization or a country or whatever are are, you know, glad handing it or duking it out in the media and it's the people behind the scenes who are doing all the real work. I mean, that, that's that's kind of what's going on here. Yeah, that's what we said before. It's Tommy and Buck doing all the work while the skippers do whatever it is they do. Well, apparently they worry. Yeah, that's right. Right. There's a story, it's like really early on that they make some reference to the skipper and he's like, a skipper's job is to find things to worry about and then worry about them. And he's happy at different points in the story because he has things to worry about. Yeah. It's a very interesting existence, but uh, seems <laughs> I don't think it's one I'd want. It's like, yeah, what, what am I going to worry about today? Oh, this sounds fun. Oh, wait, I'm having a heart attack. I've been worrying about too much stuff. We've got stress. So if you if you are worrying and you're not a captain, then it's above your pay grade. Exactly. If you're worrying, it's not your job. Well, and I find it interesting too that so they, they managed to do this universal translator thing where we, we have two completely different physical mechanisms for communicating, but they find ways of translating across the the mechanism, across cultures, across languages, 
all of that, which which is really cool. I mean, so this is this is supposedly the first instance of a universal translator being in use in a story anywhere in English, at least. That makes sense. And so it makes sense that as these two characters, Tommy and Buck, are are trying to figure out all the nuances, so to speak, and the subtleties, if there can be such a thing in a in a small dictionary of exchanged words, that they find ways to connect on. I mean, we might say on a human level, but more on a sentient level, on a being-to-being level. Well, you know, what's kind of interesting is you say it's the, the first time you see the use of a universal translator. But it's also, if you think about it, the first time anyone's thought you would need a universal translator enough to even write about. Absolutely. And that's key in and of itself. All right. So the author, first of all, has to realize, hey, these guys can't talk to each other. So I need to come up with some kind of plot device that'll let them do it. Yeah, by the time you get to somebody like, you know, Douglas Adams and the, you know, the the Babel fish that gets inserted into the ear or, you know, Star Trek has its translators, its universal translators. Oh, yeah. A lot of so times it's a, it's some sort of an earpiece. Yeah, and you get to like all the different shows where they don't even use universal translators right. because, hey, everybody on every planet speaks colloquial English and no one questions it because... Hey, nobody wants to watch TV shows about, you know, every episode you're spending half an hour trying to just, you know, learn the language, apparently. Let's just assume it's all English and call it good. And so interesting that despite the language barrier kind of being effaced, so to speak, as as the story goes along pretty quickly, we still have, well, the story is looking at the cultural differences between the alien race, which is, by the way, never named, and the human race. But instead of emphasizing what's different among them or between them, the author focuses on what's common and, and what's what's universal in terms of truths between them. Yeah, I'm not really sure if it holds together really because, I mean, it, if you look at humor just in human culture, right, it, there's a lot of cultures you can't, you know, jokes don't translate well across cultures and across languages, even on this planet. And, you know, we all share the same biology and the same general outlook on the world. And now to be fair, there wasn't really much in terms of humor research, I guess, until probably the mid nineties in psychological literature or anywhere else. But, you know, the idea in 1945, maybe it made sense. Oh yeah, we, we both tell the same jokes. We all get along, you know, and I'm sure Maria Langster didn't say, oh, hey, I can't even tell a joke to my, you know, Indian colleague or my German colleague or, you know, even Australia, whatever, Japan. Um, but yet we can make these jokes work across cultures. It shows an interesting enthusiasm for connection and an idealism in terms of, you know, different races, different, different um, cultures coming together across huge intergalactic spaces, all basically wanting the same thing. We want to live. We want to enjoy our lives. We want to... We don't want to kill everything we meet. Right. And we don't want to die, probably most importantly, is, probably not. is one of the things that, that that's in there. But yeah, so there's a it, it's an interesting story because in its attempt to be not necessarily lighthearted, but it's in its attempt to be idealistic and positive, there are things that kind of get glossed over. Well, yeah, but you can say that about a lot of different stories. You know, idealism trumps reality all the time. Yeah, this is true. So, you know, again, you kind of mentioned earlier that uh, it is 1945. It is kind of idealistic. And we, we do have, as we always like to talk about, some of the elements of the story that you're like, well, you got to kind of gloss over those. You know, the idealistic sort of naivete is one of those. 
But of course, there's other things in the story that you are are not certainly unique to this one. You know, they, they talk about having the stereo photos and the visit plates and the coils and this, you know, the mechanical objects that make the ship work. Because, you know, if a coil goes bad, uh, something's going to happen. I was amused that one of the visit plates, like in, in an attempt to be able to show a panoramic view, there's there's a reference made to the rear view mirror on an automobile right. that, that one of the visit plates is kind of like that. So you can you can look at the stuff that's behind you as well. Man, rear view mirrors and automobiles. I'm not actually even sure when those came along. I mean, 1945? I, yeah, I mean, I guess they would have been on cars for a while, but there was some point in time that they weren't there. Well, they didn't have seatbelts yet. That's true, or probably automatic transmissions. Yeah, that's true as well. But of course, they also have blasters, which we still have to this day, so... <laughs> Yeah, it, well, and it's interesting that these ships are equipped to go into space for exploration. The only resolution to an encounter with an alien is to kill them, and yet they don't have blasters that are designed for war. I'm not really sure what they are designed for. I think there's a reference in there somewhere to them for being blowing up space debris. Oh, that's right, in case a pesky little asteroid gets in your path or something. Yeah, so they, they basically retool their road-clearing crew <laughs> or their, their, their cow catcher. Your snow plow. Yeah, they reconfigure that for war on the fly because despite the fact that war is the only possible outcome and that we must kill the aliens, we are we not going to go in. Any- yeah, we didn't prepare in any way, shape, or form for it. <laughs> That's right. Oh, hey, there's an alien. Oh, my, we better retrofit the, the ship quickly for war. And of course, you know, looking ahead to modern era of science fiction, we've gotten those ship-mounted blasters down to the point where they can be on Han Solo's, you know, hip. That's right, because everything is better when it's smaller. Yeah, there's almost an obligatory, that's what she said, reference in there, Bill. That's right, or that's, that's not what she said. Yeah, I'd say the same thing about my bank account. It doesn't benefit by being smaller. Talk about male bonding and bad humor. Oh, absolutely. So anyway, yeah, getting back to this whole blaster conversation, now we've gotten them down to the point where they're smaller and they're mounted on people's hips, and so God knows every science fiction story has one included nowadays. And we have to argue over who shot first. Let's come on back to the idea of of the title of the story, the first contact, because, you know, there's a lot of science fiction, including some of the stuff that we have talked about so far on the podcast, where it's just a foregone conclusion that there's aliens and that we're interacting with them, or, you know, that it's, it's, it's only a matter of time before we do. Uh, there's a lot of stuff, obviously, that, that focuses ultimately on they're going to eat us, we're going to kill them, we're going to, you know, that war is the only outcome. But when you really get down to it, this is one of those stories where it's, it's, it's different in some ways because they're trying to figure out how do we connect, how, how, how might we begin to interact and what might be the outcomes or the conclusions of that interaction that doesn't involve somebody dying? Right. Yeah. I mean, you look at a lot of the early first contact, you know, stories and, and movies, and they did end up, you know, they're, they're either, you know, two spacefaring civilizations that can't get along. They're, you know, one's just like a completely primitive society or one's like completely hyper advanced. You don't really see a lot where it's comparable societies at comparable states of development with, you know, a comparable outlook on the universe trying to trying to get along. Right. Because if you look at something like Stargate, you know, the aliens have been among us in the past, but we were not at a at a level of development where we could see them as anything but gods and magical. You look at something like, you know, we made reference earlier to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in terms of the universal translator and Arthur Dent is a character who 
has no clue that there are aliens out there, but there's a whole universe of humans and aliens that are already interacting with one another, and he's just not with the program so far. And so that, that's that's more indicative. You, you look at something like Contact, though, you know, written by Carl Sagan, the film. That, that was still a pretty hyper-advanced society trying to you know bring us up to a level of technology. I'm thinking more like the... Yeah, that's true. Yeah, they're trying to bring us to them, and... I'm thinking more like Star Trek, the original series, right? Where you either, they again, they'd meet either super hyper advanced beings or they'd meet primitive people that, you know, needed, you know, guidance or something. Guidance under Captain Kirk is <laughs> kind of a messy right. subject. But. Yeah, but in the context of the show, you know, we've already got the Vulcans and the Romulans and the Klingons. Yeah, and it's true that, you know, all of those different species do come with their own origin stories. And after the first, you know, uh, iteration of Star Trek appeared in the 60s, a lot of the later series went on to try to, you know, explain some of those origin stories, like, you know, Enterprise, I think, was the one with Scott Bakula, and I think he's he's credited with the first meeting with uh, the Klingons, you've got the movie Star Trek First Contact, which supposedly talks about uh, the first encounter with Vulcans, which, by the way, leads to First Contact Day, which, for those of you who don't know, it's April 5th. Of course, it doesn't occur until 2063, but you can celebrate it if you want. I have never celebrated it. Never. And I think, and I think there's actually another origin story with the Romulans, but I, you know, I don't remember when that one happened. Yeah, and, and the, as various races get introduced that become significant, not as one-off stories, but as recurring experiences or part of the, the, the Federation or, you know, that come in contact with the Federation races, their civilizations, you know, we get more and more of those first contact kinds of explorations happening, but it's really a way of playing out, oh, what kind of a race haven't we had come onto the show before? And, and what are the kinds of moralities or what are the kinds of ideas about the way that we interact? Man, what kind of philosophical debate can we come up with by, you know, how this particular race lives their lives and how it differs from, you know, what we think of as acceptable? Yeah. And, you know, that's one of the things that's cool about Leinster's first contact is that they, they, they say, you know, both of us come with the, the foregone conclusion that one of us has to die. But what if we didn't? And, and, and wouldn't it be cool if we could somehow learn about each other's cultures, we could learn about each other's peoples, that we could engage in some sort of a trade? We have so much that we might learn from one another. And so let's find a way. I mean, so that that's kind of cool. Yeah. Star Trek is one of those those series where it's built on the assumption that there are going to be some races that we go to war with, but some others that we're going to connect with and that we're going to trade with. Well, obviously, it's only the ones that can't understand our jokes are the ones that we need to go to war with. There you go. You know, exterminate everyone who doesn't laugh at my jokes. Oh, there's going to be a lot of people who have to die. <laughs> well, I mean, it's still interesting that, and we talked about this a little bit before, but the role of the dirty joke in 1945, I think, was you know much more pronounced, you know, much more... Uh, I'm not sure what the right word is for this. Well, yeah, I mean, it's what constitutes a dirty joke when there's so little that is allowed to be said in, in, in mixed company or in polite company. Yeah, in the 1940s, you know, you still got a very strong Puritan ethic going through the United States. You know, I, I can't even think like until George Carlin came along and started doing things in the 1970s where you started hearing you know, dirty words on the air or in any type of yeah, media. Yeah, what, right? what was his, um, his routine? It was the seven dirty words. Yeah, there we go, yeah. the seven dirty. I was trying to remember the number. But before that, I mean, you don't really have much. There might have been a few books of dirty jokes, but 
you know, they weren't on TV, they weren't on the radio, they weren't in print form, or if they were in print form, they were just kind of passed around, you know, under cover of night, apparently. And, you know, I think we tried seeing if we could even find any dirty jokes from the 1940s, and you, <laughs> you can't even find them. So apparently it was much more of a significant cultural uh, effort to have dirty jokes as as the precursor for civilized contact than we would think of nowadays. So if you're listening and you know some dirty jokes from the 1940s, reach out to us because, yeah, we could always do a, a sequel or an add-on to the episode that, that, that covers the topic. Yeah, and if you're going to send us uh, any of your 1940s dirty jokes, if you'd like to enclose maybe a, a $10 bill or something to kind of offset the cost of production, that, that'd be appreciated. There we go. I think we one of the things we were going to talk about a little bit further on in the episode is, is kind of how Murray Leinster was kind of shaped to some degree by what he had seen before in history as far as you know, different types of first contact situations and, and what had gone on before. Yeah, you know, we've, we've called attention to how he's trying to challenge the prevailing notion of what it is that is going to happen when two races that don't know each other come into first contact. Yeah, what's that, that post-colonialist term? Is that what it is? You know, I wouldn't go so far as to call first contact from Leinster post-colonial or anything like that. But you know, as, as we've been talking about what are some good examples or, or what are any examples from science fiction, any kind of fiction about first contact that, that don't end in war and don't end in, um, you know, the, the destruction of, of one culture or another, you start looking at Look at all of human history. Look at look at all yes, the explorations exactly. <laughs> that were going on in the 14th and 15th and 16th centuries. And that's exactly it. That's what I was trying to go with that. You know, the, the, every story that we have of first contact with other cultures, even from our own human history on our own planet, you know, there's there's often a differential of power or technology or aggression or something like that, and it ends badly for one of the cultures. They get annexed or they get destroyed or they get run off. Yeah, so maybe it's not really, you know, such a stretch to wonder why in this story would the, the captain or the skipper keeps saying, well, yep, only way out is for war, because if, if you're Murray Leinster, that's probably the only history you have to draw upon is the history of exploration and colonization by the Europeans. Well, and remember when he's writing this as well, it's actually... It's 1945, and gee, what's been going on for the last couple of years? Right, we've had, you know, a, a technologically advanced culture trying to exert its political power over the rest of the planet. Absolutely true. Not really first contact. So it's no wonder, as you said, that this is where, you know, that this seems like a novel idea to him. Well, Dan, I've got another novel idea. Let's talk about first contact in the context of our, hmm, whoa, what the fuck scale. So for me, you know, that the storyline, it's not real complicated. It's not real deep. You know, the story's main claim to fame, like we discussed earlier, was the whole idea that it, it's the first one that talks about the universal translator. And, and that's really the hook in the story. So for me, it's mostly in the hmm category. You know, maybe back in the early 40s, it may have been a woe or something else. But for me, that's really all I can really get out of this one. I think because... A lot of the end game hinges on this notion that we might find commonality or common ground with another species or another, you know, starfaring race through something like crude humor. He's trying to get us to rise up to the occasion, I guess, or something like that. But like you said, I, I'm not sure that it goes beyond the hmm for me. Not a bad story by any means. Interesting in, in a variety of ways. 
But at the same time, like you said, it's it's not one that pushes me to reach for much more than that. Totally with you. You know, we hope you stick around for our next episode of TBD because just like Leinster is somebody who came up with a, a different way of, of looking at that notion of first contact that doesn't end in the obvious of mayhem and warfare, we're going to turn to J.G. Ballard, who is known for being one of the voices that turned science fiction a little bit on its head when he, when he entered into the conversation. That story would be the Voices of Time.